Please open your Bible up to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking this week at Ephesians 4, 25 through 5, 2. I'll read our passage and then we'll respond to the reading of God's word with this uh, verse from Isaiah chapter 40 that's printed in your worship guide. Ephesians 4, uh, beginning at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you were with us last week, uh, you'll remember that Paul taught about the old self having been put off, a new self having been put on, and so we need to renew our minds so that we can live according with the new self that's been put on. And the passage we're looking at this week is really a continuation of that same thought. Recall the thought there that Paul was saying is, is this work has already been done. You've already been made into a new creation if you have learned Christ, if you believe in Christ. And so it's a bit like you put on your nicest shirt and tie and you pick up your date and then you take them to the demo derby at the fairgrounds, right? It's not the right kind of activity for the outfit you have on. And Paul's saying in the same way, if you have a new self put on, you need to behave accordingly. When you're dressed up nice in your nicest shirt and tie, you go out for dinner down on the waterfront at sunset, right? Not to the demo derby. That's a fine date, but you need to dress accordingly. You need to act according to how you're dressed. So Paul picks up this same idea and he works it out in four different areas of our life. What it looks like to put off the old self, put off behaviors that go to the old self, to have our mind renewed, and to put on a new way of living. Each of these four ways that, or four areas of life that Paul touches on are relational. About what does life together look like? And this is because the larger context, remember, we're looking at here in Ephesians 4 is not just about how to live well, but how to live life together well as a church. And so uh, putting off the old behaviors, being renewed, putting on the new behaviors is not only good for us, but it's good for our community life together. Let's look at these four areas, these four principles that Paul lays out for us. The first principle, uh, ethical principle he, he gives us is this. Put off the lie, instead speak truth. Put off the lie, instead speak truth. 
It's right here for us in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Paul's uh, language here, put off falsehood, uh, he actually uses a definite article in Greek, so it's not just falsehood generally put off lies, but put off the lie, the falsehood. Certainly one implication is that we need to put away lying, that it's inappropriate for Christians to lie. He's saying put that away. But even more than that, he's saying we need to put away the lie. Basic lies about ourselves, our world, and what God's like. If you remember Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve, the first humans, are in the garden, and they're tempted by the serpent, it begins with a lie about what God is like. The serpent says, did God really tell you not to eat any of the fruit in the garden? And he's subtly suggesting that God is not generous, because in fact what God said is, eat all this except for one tree. It's really a generous command to go and eat. And yet the serpent subtly is, is inducing this lie into their minds that God is fundamentally restrictive and stingy and waiting to scold you for stepping out of line. And so Adam and Eve's first rebellion, their first breaking of God's law, it starts with a lie, the lie about God's own character, and then the lie that if you break God's law, you can actually be God's yourself. You can take his place. You can be like God. Of course, this is a deep irony because Adam and Eve were already created in God's image. They already were images of God and to live in his likeness. And yet they wanted to take God's place. And so it begins with a lie. And so all these wrong behaviors that Paul describes this week, they all start with lies. Lies about ourselves, about God, about our place in the world. And those lies have to be put off for our minds to be renewed and then to put on good behavior in its place, right behavior. Each wrong behavior that Paul targets in this passage begins with lies. And so our minds need to be renewed as part of this process. Lies must be replaced by truth so that we can live rightly. So how then does Paul renew our minds here? How does he say our minds need to be renewed, rather? Uh, he says, put away falsehood, put off the lie. But then he says, because we're members of one another. We're all parts of the same body. He's saying we're all limbs of the same body. Uh, it, it's, it's really drawing on the same body of Christ image that he's been using throughout this chapter. The lie is that we are separate from each other that we're all discreet, that I can lie and it doesn't really affect you and I don't owe you the truth necessarily. That's a lie that we tell ourselves. We're under no obligation to each other. But the truth, the truth that renews our minds is that we are neighbors, that we're in fact, as Christians, members of the same body and so we owe each other the truth. If you broke your wrist, you wouldn't lie to the rest of your body and say, ignore the pain coming from the wrist, it's all fine, don't worry about it, right? The rest of the body helps the broken wrist. It sets it. It takes it to the doctor. And Paul's saying it's kind of the same thing in the church. Lying to each other is like lying to your own body about a broken bone. It's lying to the very people that can help you. And so we're members one of another. We don't lie to each other, but we speak the truth to each other so that we can encourage each other. So we put off lies. Our mind is renewed. And then having put off the lies, having had our minds renewed, what do we do positively in its place? We speak the truth. We speak the truth to each other. Uh, Paul actually quotes Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16 here, here, when he says, let each one of you 
speak the truth with his neighbor. And so Paul shows us that when we're looking for positive, right things to do, we turn to God's word. It shows us how to live out the good life. God's word provides our guidance. It shows us that we're obligated to speak the truth to each other as neighbors. Paul's second principle is put off sinful anger. Instead, be kind. Put off sinful anger. Instead, be kind. Paul has more to say about anger in this passage than any other uh, issue that he addresses. He addresses it in verses 26 and 27, and then again in 31 and 32. Why might that be that he spends so much time dealing with anger? Well, first we need to know what Paul says to put off. He doesn't say, don't be angry, in verse 26. No, he says, be angry and do not sin. What we're to put off is sinful anger. Anger in itself is a natural human emotion. It's an emotion that God is said to have throughout the Bible. God is said to be angry. And in fact, anger is the right response to injustice and wickedness. And so sometimes, some of us are actually too slow to feel anger when we see things that are wrong in our world. We ought to be angry with injustice. And we imitate God when we are angry about the right things. The problem is that human anger is very easily twisted. It's very easily twisted. And it very easily becomes sinful anger. And so in verses 26 and 27, Paul puts three boundaries around our anger to help protect our anger from becoming sinful anger. First, he says, be angry and do not sin. That when you're experiencing anger about something, be very careful that you're not sinning in your anger. Second, in your anger, or don't let the sun go down on your anger. Think, deal with your anger quickly. Don't let it fester. And then third, he says, in your anger, give no opportunity to the devil. Human anger is a natural emotion, and it can even mirror God, and yet it also opens a door that the devil can exploit. Our anger easily leads to sinful responses, and it can lead to bitterness. And so then in verses 31 and 32, Paul again addresses anger. And it's, uh, he addresses it, after talking about some other things, and it's as if he's saying with this little gap between verses, okay, if you didn't deal with your anger right, you didn't deal with it before the sun went down, you let it fester, now it's cropping up in your life as bitterness. And so then he says in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and shouting and insulting be put away from you along with malice. Okay, he's like addressing anger once it's become sinful. So he tells us what to put off. Sinful anger in a variety of forms. Now, seeing what needs to be put off, our minds need to be renewed. Here he points the way that our minds should be renewed in verse 32. He says, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. The lie that fuels sinful anger is a false estimation of ourselves. It's thinking that we are better than we really are. We see ourselves as better than others. We lie to ourselves about our own failures. And so our anger then is not righteous, but rather self-righteous anger. 
day, why can't people just be like me? Why can't they do things right like I do things right? And we get angry with people. That's the lie that must be confronted. And how does Paul confront it? He confronts it with the truth that we are all cosmic failures. We're not better than others. We're all cosmic failures. All have failed to live up to God's standard, but God in Christ forgave you. And this implies a total reorientation of our minds. Instead of self-righteousness, we see ourselves as forgiven failures. That's what we are, is forgiven failures. And if we are forgiven failures, what right do we have to be bitter and angry and shout at others when they fail? No, we are greatly valued, greatly valued indeed. Christ himself was given that we might be forgiven. That's a great value. But our value is not that we are better than others. Our value is that we are forgiven failures, redeemed by Christ Jesus, bought back, as we learned in Sunday school this morning. Okay, we put off sinful anger. Our minds are renewed as we see ourselves forgiven in Christ. So then what do we put on? How do we live out the new life? We be kind. Put off sinful anger. Instead, be kind. In verse 32, Paul gives us three antidotes to sinful anger. The first is to be kind to one another. And frankly, uh, to, to be tenderhearted and to forgive one another. To be kind. It sounds so simple, it's almost trite. And yet, uh, N.T. Wright, commenting on this passage, describes kindness as the forgotten Christian virtue. So much of our anger can be dealt with by simply being friendly and considerate of others, being kind. Second, Paul says to be tender-hearted, to be compassionate, to be gentle. And third, to forgive others as you have been forgiven. Forgiving is refusing to let anger go unchecked and to fester and to become infected and to become bitterness and wrath and shouting. It's saying, I'm not going to let my anger, even if it's at a a real genuine slight, I'm not going to let my anger control me. I met an older saint who was injured on the job, and she uh, went to a surgeon to repair her injury, and the surgeon greatly bungled the surgery, and actually uh, she wound up with even less mobility than she had before the surgery. The doctor eventually lost his medical license uh, because he'd done this a series of times. Uh, And she was urged by lawyers to join a lawsuit against the doctor suing him. And yet she wisely recognized that a prolonged trial would make her keep going back to this injury over and over again. And it would make her get angry over and over again over this thing, and that it would actually lead to bitterness over time. And so although she was completely in the right and she had been wronged and deserved to be angry about how she had been wronged, Uh, She chose to forgive and not let this anger about what had been done to her control her life. She recognized that a long trial holding on to her anger would not be good for her soul. And keeping her soul in check or intact in health was more important than any money she might win from a lawsuit. Put off sinful anger. Instead, be kind. In verse 28, Paul points us to a third ethical principle. Put off stealing. Instead, work to give. 
Put off stealing. Instead, work to give. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. What are we told to put off? What behavior? Stealing. That's obvious, right? Burgling, breaking into cars, shoplifting. We know what stealing looks like. It's, It's obvious. And yet stealing can also be so much more subtle Co-workers punching out for your, your time card, punching your time card out for you after you've already left work. Cheating on your taxes, disputing an employee's legitimate L&I claim, selling a car and reporting it as a gift on the title so you don't have to pay taxes, not sharing tips with your co-workers, taking office supplies that you shouldn't. Uh, the list goes on, the many ways that we steal, and yet we don't call it stealing, we call it other things, sort of fudging, right, or... or, or reappropriating things that we rightfully deserve. What's common to all these, from burgling to taking office supplies to cheating on our taxes? They're all driven by the same lie, the same basic lie we tell ourselves. I deserve this. I deserve this. I've worked jobs where I was very underpaid uh, and taken advantage of by my employer. And I know that when your employer is stealing from you, it's easy to get angry about it. And it's easy to start telling yourself, I deserve this. And so the temptation's there to over-report your hours or to, uh, you know, take a break for an hour in the back room where the boss doesn't know what you're doing, those kinds of things. Uh, The temptation is there to steal back from someone who's stealing from you. And yet Paul says we are called to be kind, to be tenderhearted, to forgive. Even being robbed uh, by an employer, for example, doesn't justify you robbing. We lie to ourselves saying we deserve this. But in place of this mindset, Paul offers a renewed way of thinking. Instead of focusing on what we're owed, we ought to see ourselves as obligated to others. We have an obligation to care for those in need. We're studying Deuteronomy in the evening. We're actually going to see this is a basic principle of Old Testament ethics that we are obligated to care for those in need. He says we need to take care of those, Paul says. Work hard so that you can care for others rather than focusing on what you deserve. And so third then, Paul shows us how to live out this new life. He says labor, doing honest work so that we have something to share with anyone in need. This is a total reorientation of the way we think about our job. Note that Paul prioritizes honest work. He doesn't say do the job that makes the most money. He says do honest work. The fact of the matter is, I won't, I won't nitpick my personal list, but the fact of the matter is, in the contemporary world, there is all sorts of jobs that it's questionable if they count as honest work. Sure, they pay well and have lots of respect associated with them, but are they actually honest work? Paul says it's more important that you work an honest job Uh, It preserves your soul to do honest work than just the job that pays the most money. Second, he says our motivation for working is is to be able to help others more, not so that we have more to ourselves. Some of you, perhaps even there's a challenge here, that you should work harder so that you can get a promotion, so that you can make more money, not so that you can buy more jet skis or something like that, but so that you have more resources to help those in need. It's a different way of thinking about our job and what we have. 
And finally, note that Paul doesn't qualify who is deserving of help. He says, so that you have something to share with anyone in need. We don't just look for the deserving needy, but anyone in need. So we put off stealing, and instead we work to give. We work so that we can share with others. Then Paul sets a fourth principle before us in in verses 29 and 30. Put off corrupting talk, instead build up. Put off corrupting talk, instead build up. See the principle here in verse 29? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. What are we to put off? Corrupting talk. It's, uh, Paul's word, it's rotten. Rotten talk. Last year I was uh, heading out to run some errands and I grabbed an apple on the way out. and It looked like a great apple and I started biting it and I took a couple fresh bites and it was good. And then I took a bite, uh, got down towards the core and it was rotten at the core and my mouth was just full of disgusting, putrid, moldy apple. And I you know, opened the car door and spit it all out right away and couldn't get the flavor out of my mouth of how gross that is. Paul says our speech can be like that. It can be rotten at its core. From the outside, it looks good. Maybe it gets laughs, or it shows that we're in the know, or it makes us look smarter than everyone around us, or somehow more, uh, more suave or worldly than everybody around us. And yet, at its core, it's rotten, like that bite of bad apple. And actually, I, it's translated for us as corrupting talk, because it's not just rotten in itself, but it, 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 it corrupts those who hear it. It's like corrosive acid, that it eats away at the people who hear it. And again, that challenges a false mindset. We put off corrupting talk. Our minds need to be renewed. We tell ourselves a lie. We say, you know what? I live in a country with freedom of speech, and so I can say whatever I want to. And if what I'm saying harms someone else, it's their problem, not mine. They should grow up. They should be more mature. They shouldn't be bothered by the things I'm saying. And yet Paul pushes back. He says, we are obligated to care for each other's, to care for each other with our words just as much as with our wealth. We're obligated to care for each other with our words, to mind how our words affect those around us, to build each other up. Furthermore, in verse 30, Paul says, if you've learned Christ, if this old self has been put off, if a new self has been put on, then the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, dwells in you as a seal or a mark or a guarantee of your coming redemption. And throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul has been saying the Spirit's work dwelling in believers is to build up the body of Christ together, to build us together as one. And so our words should not bring grief on the Spirit as he's trying to build us up together, but rather our words should work with the Spirit. They should also build each other up, just as the Spirit is at work building up the church. So our word, our, the way we speak shouldn't go against the Spirit's work, but should, should contribute to the Spirit's work. And so what then do we replace our corrupting talk with, having renewed our minds? Paul gives three standards for evaluating our speech. First, does it build up? Uh, this is hard because you actually have to think about what you're about to say. And that doesn't come naturally, at least to some of us. But we need to ask ourselves, does this build up? 
Is what I'm saying helping the people around me become more Christ-like? Is it encouraging them? Is it building them up? Second, does it fit the occasion? We need to consider who's listening, who we're talking to. Am I talking in a way that doesn't help the people that are actually around me? Uh, is it inappropriate for the aged people I'm talking to, perhaps, or in mixed company? Third, does it give grace to those who hear? Our words should actually be giving grace to those who hear us. So put off corrupting talk. Instead, build up. In summary then, if we have learned Christ, if we are Christ followers, our old self has been put off. A new self has been put on. And we are called to continually renew our minds. And Paul then says there's a bunch of old behaviors that we need to put off and new behaviors to put on in their place. And he shows this in four areas. He says, put off the lie and speak truth. Put off anger, instead be kind. Uh, Put off stealing, instead work so you can give. And put off corrupting talk, instead build off. So he shows what this looks like to put away old behaviors and replace them with new behaviors that fit our new self that God is recreating. Then in conclusion in verses In chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul draws out the general principles for Christian ethics that shapes renewed thinking and renewed living. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God as beloved children in all things. Uh, He applies it to four areas, and I forgot to comment, but these four areas, you'll note, they're all drawn from the Ten Commandments. Jesus says, anger is what leads to murder. Uh, Lying and false witness are connected together. Right? Um, stealing is, is one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, corrupting talk, it's again connected to this sort of bearing false witness. Uh, and, and so it's showing us how we should live in a godlike way. But Paul has only touched on four areas. There's lots of other areas that we need to evaluate. And yet the basic principle is to be imitators of God as beloved children. Like a child working in the kitchen with, with their mom or dad, and they have their own little bowl that they're mixing flour in next to their mom and dad baking. That's what we're supposed to be like with God, imitating him, doing the same work he's doing. What does this look like? Well, in verse 2, Paul says it's walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Imitating God is the same thing as walking in love, for as John says in 1 John, God is love. If God is love, then we walk in love. It's like if you ever in the snow or at the beach walked in someone else's footsteps, the exact same footsteps. It's saying, walk in the footsteps of love. Walk in love. And that is imitating God. But we don't define what love looks like. Well, I think this or that or a third thing is love, and so therefore this is what I'm going to do. And we let love become the, the governing principle of our ethic. It should be the governing principle, but love must be defined by Christ himself. Paul says, walk in love as Christ loved us. We look to Jesus Christ to see what love looks like. Christians say, Jesus Christ is fully God. He's fully God. And so when we look at Jesus, we see what God himself is like. If we want to imitate God, we look to Jesus to see what that looks like. And yet Jesus is also fully human. He's fully God and yet also fully human. And so he shows us what a human life lived in perfect imitation of God looks like. 
And so in the Gospels, in Jesus' fully human life, we see Jesus angry, like in John chapter 2 that we read today, and yet not sinning in his anger. We see Jesus hard at work. Uh, We see him at times even late into the night healing people and teaching. And yet he's not hard at work for his own gain. He's hard at work for the sake of others. We see Jesus in conversation, building others up, speaking words that are fitting to the occasion, given who he's talking to. At times, his words are quite sharp, challenging the religious leaders, for example. At other times, his words are very tender and gentle. They're fitting to the occasion, but they always seek to bring grace to those he speaks with. We see Jesus living in a way that brings joy, not grief to the Holy Spirit. We see Jesus rejected by his people, questioned by his family, rejected even by his friends, abandoned by his friends, yet not bitter, not shouting, not insulting, but kind, tender-hearted, even forgiving others as he hung on the cross. In Jesus Christ, we see a human life imitating God perfectly. This seems like an impossibly high standard, doesn't it? All you have to do to live an ethical life is imitate God. There's nothing else to it. That seems like an impossibly high standard. And in fact, it is a crushing standard if you try to do it in your own strength. If you hear me this morning and you do not believe in Jesus, if you don't trust in him, if you haven't learned Christ as we talked about last week, and you're trying to do these things that we've talked about in your own strength, you will be crushed. Rather, our hope is not to live up to this impossibly high standard ourselves. It's to live out this life as forgiven failures. Paul said in the passage we looked at last week that we are being renewed. We are being recreated. Someone else is doing it to us. That someone else is God himself. God is working within us, and that's our only hope. That as we come to Jesus Christ, we read in verse uh, 5, verse 2, he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. He was a sacrifice in our place so that we can be forgiven, so we can be redeemed, kids, as we learned in Sunday school this morning, so that we can be drawn into relationship with God. Our relationship can be mended, and we can begin to imitate him. And this is our motivation, too. We are so loved by Christ Jesus who gave himself for us so we, too, can love. We should overflow knowing each day that we are loved by Christ Jesus, that he gave himself for us, so we can love others. And we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, if you believe in Christ Jesus, for the day of redemption. God's own spirit is applying Christ's love and work to you. And this life that Paul describes is meant to be lived out in community. He talks about us being members of one another, of sharing with each other, of building each other up, of forgiving each other. It's not a life that you try and do on your own, but together as a Christian community. And so Paul sets before us in four ways what this new life looks like. This new life is open to anyone. If you try and live it by yourself in your own power, you'll be crushed. And yet it's open to anyone. If you're here today and you're thinking, I need to be forgiven by Christ Jesus, it's open 
to you. You may recognize, I need to put my selfish old self off. I need a new recreated self to be put on. And you might realize, I can't do that myself. I need God to do that for me. That is open to you. Believe in Christ Jesus. And if you have already done so, if you've learned Christ, as Paul describes it last week, if, you've, if you're being recreated, then you have to continue this process, putting off the old behaviors that don't fit anymore. You've got your nice shirt and tie on now. You can't go to the demo derby. You need to live in a way that's appropriate for how you've been dressed. But it's not external dress. It's a new life, a new spirit within you, the spirit of God himself. And so you must live accordingly. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you are at work recreating sinful, broken humans. We thank you that through Christ Jesus, our old self, our broken self can be put off and a new self is put on, that we are being recreated. And yet with this great truth that we are being recreated comes a great challenge. We are challenged to live in a way that accords with this new life. And so we ask, Lord, that we would rise to this challenge, not in our own strength, but in the strength of Christ's love for us. That we would put off old ways of behaving. We would put off lies. We would put off anger. We would put off stealing. We would put off corrupting talk. And instead, we would live in ways that are truthful, that build up, that are kind, that are gentle, that are forgiving, that we would live in a way that seeks the good of each other. Let your spirit within us not be grieved by the way we live, but let us bring joy to your spirit by participating in his work. Amen.